Welcome back to Season 3 of the Digital Orthopedics Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Stefano Bini. In this series of podcasts, we are highlighting the best presentations from the January 2020 San Francisco Digital Orthopedics Conference, otherwise known as DOCSF, presented in partnership with UCSF's Department of Orthopedic Surgery, and the November 2019 DOCSF Berlin Conference, presented in partnership with Frontiers Health. In this episode 13 of season 3, we are truly excited to bring you our second and equally powerful keynote from DOCSF 2020. Ivan Popuriev is the Director of Engineering at Google. When I first heard Ivan speak at TED 2019, I had the impression that I had been given the opportunity to peek just over the horizon and get a glimpse of the future of computing. I knew there and then that we should try to get Ivan to speak at DOCSF. I was able to connect with Ivan thanks to some friends at Google and we started a great conversation. That conversation led to his agreeing to share his vision with our audience from the DOCSF stage where we now join him. Well, I get to introduce someone that actually you've already met. I was, it's not really an introduction. Robert Cohn is going to come back on stage. Uh, let me talk a little bit about you. You've met him before. He's a VP at Stryker. He's uh, really running the show there as it relates to orthopedics. He and I had a little discussion last night, and he's a, a proud resident of the state of New Jersey. Always love to see that. His background is as an entrepreneur. He started companies. He sold them into companies. He's running extremely large organizations at Stryker. He's done it before. And one of the reasons he's coming up on stage is they are Stryker is the gold sponsor for DocSF. Platinum. Oh, wow. Platinum, of course. Diamond and platinum sponsor. So with that, Robert, here's the phone. Thank you. And uh, platinum's enough. Thank you for that. <laughs> we're, we're good there. Thank you. And, and just so you know, uh, Stefano, he works you hard, right? So, you know, at break, he puts you in a meeting. Then there's somebody sticking a microphone in your face in the hallway asking what you think about Doff. And then you go to a podcast and then you finish the podcast and he, he puts you right up here. So more power to him. And congratulations to the whole SF staff. You guys do a, a remarkable job. I can tell you, looking from a company, and I'm proud to represent in my R&D group about 750 people. We're uh, joint replacement, hips, knees, robotics, pre-planning, imaging, data, and data acquisition, data analytics. So it's exciting times. But events like this, you know, companies by itself can't do what we do. There's no way we're going to be able to develop all this internally. This is really about partnership. Many of us are on here of different aspects of the digital journey, but the digital journey is for real. And we want to get there. We want to get there with a quality mind. We want to get there in the right place. And I love it that we have hospital systems, clinicians, and industry in the same room actually working for a common objective. So congratulations on that. Technologies and as a whole, you know, there's there's a lot of different ways to look at it, right? So we've done okay at Stryker with 3D printing. We've been able to make implants now in shapes and configurations that conventional manufacturing process won't. That's a benefit of technology. For robotics, we can get into individualized medicine like we never could before. And with robotics, we can get data acquisition like never before and information on a patient to that surgeon, let that surgeon act on that information, which is data execute a plan with precision and accuracy that we never had before, and then actually look at patient performance relative to that surgical plan. 
there's a continuous learning aspect to that that's actually quite remarkable. For those of you that are going to the Stryker Symposium, oh, so I'll be giving you a lot more background on what we're doing with data and what we're doing with data off robots and why that matters in the whole world of Stryker and Stryker business. So that's immediately following this on the third floor, and there's lunch down there, and I've got to get everyone back up here at 1.30, so we're going to start prompt. It's a relatively small room, so whoever wants seats and things like that, just appreciate anybody going if you'd go as quick as possible. So that's one technology that's enabling, but there's lots of different technologies and technologies that not only contribute to digitization, but also then other things that can get us data in ways we never could before. I'll tell you, when we sit here and we think of a surgeon, how many of us sit here a surgeon actually know the surgeon's movements? How many people have actually tracked surgeon economics? You know, many hip and knee surgeons retire in their 60s, but not because they want to retire. Just the idea of where they put their shoulder, where they have to put instruments, where they have to use a mallet, where they have to hold power tools and pushing on it, rotator cuff problems, tendon problems, wrist problems. And many people retire just because they can't do it anymore. So there's a lot of different ways, but have we ever mapped that? So there's technologies now that we look at, and that's a data component we want. Maybe we should do instruments completely different. Maybe we should look at a surgical procedure. Maybe we should look at an access approach to where an implant goes in an individual in a complete different line of sight. So those things are important, but we never had means to record those. We never had large scale and large amount of data to be able to utilize it. So in this sense, why don't we look at everyday objects and make them connected? create a true single platform. And that's really what our guest speaker is about. So you can read on the on the agenda what his last name is. He's told me three times, I'm not going to embarrass myself by trying to pronounce it. So he's going to go by Yvonne. <laughs> so Yvonne, over the last 20 years, he has been leading innovation, development, productization of breakthrough technologies that span a variety of fields, such as virtual and augmented reality. Haptic interaction, the Internet of Things, novel touch, touchless sensor paradigms, wearables, smart garments, 3D printing, and novel manufacturing techniques. He is currently a director of engineering and technical projects lead in Google's advanced technology and projects division, where he leads a team focused on inventing and developing interaction technologies and products for the future lifestyle. He's a published author and a frequent speaker. Fast Company Magazine recognized him as one of the world's 100 most creative people, describing him as one of the world's greatest interaction designers. In 2019, he was honored with the National Design Award for Interaction Design. With that, we're honored to have Yvonne talk to us. Yvonne? Good afternoon. Does it work? Perfect. So I'm going to talk about ambient computing. Thank you for the introduction, Robert. I'm talking about ambient computing and why working on that. And before I go to that, I would like to just all us step back and just kind of be amazed how far we went with computing. We started with computing, like big boxes on the left, right, with size of the room. And now the computer is much more powerful than that. We're using it in a bed and in our pockets. And it's not only the size of the computers that has changed, it's also how we use them. We started with the computers as an office tool. You work on the computer, your full focus and attention is on the computer. 
Today, we are driving with that, we are running with that, we are cooking with that. Computers become a companion which helps us to lead a everyday life. We even perform knee surgeries with computers in our hands. And um, the problem here comes up is that does one size fits all? And this problem has been known in the research community for a long time because the mobile phone as we have right now doesn't change. It's the same phone we use for all of those things. Does it fit all? Can we use the phone for all these actions we're using right now? And the other problem there is that the way we interact with the computers hasn't changed since it was invented in 19... The interaction design we're using right now was invented in the 80s. And it's the same design. We are still clicking on icons. We're still moving things on the screen. We're still fully focused attention on the screen. The computer drags all the attention. You have to fully focus. It's still an office device. It just became portable, so we can use it all the time, and it's taking more and more of our attention. So what other alternatives? Is there any other way to provide computing power and computing functionality to people around us? And I've been thinking this for quite a while, and one of the things I was very excited is the things, things around us. We are surrounded by thousands of things, and we're touching them every day. These are pictures of things that a person touched during the day. By looking at the picture, you can see what the person likes to do. The person likes motorcycles. You can see there's the wheels and tools he uses every day. What about this person? There's a girl in Australia. She spends all her time by the sea. You can see by the things she's using. That reflects who she is. What about this guy? He's a chef, right? I mean, it's obviously. So all the things, all the ingredients he touches during the day, and a computer is only a small part of his life. This is a sad thing in the corner. So if we're already using all these things every day, can these things can become an interface to our digital life? Or can we use technology to make them better, more helpful, and bring all these new exciting capabilities which have been developed recently in everyday things? Can the world be your interface to digital life? So this is the question I asked myself 10, 15, 20 years ago. And I'm not the only one. There's a big community of people working on that. And I would like to talk about it, about three main problems we've been trying to solve. Some of them being solved to a certain degree, but we're solving some of them are solving right now. There are three problems need to be solved in order to make this happen. First of all, how can we go from the computer interfaces or interfaces as part of the computer to things as interfaces? Is it even possible to do that? Um, in my early thinking, I was in, very inspired by this book by Stephen Levy called Hackers. And the Hackers talks about how nature of things, the behavior of things can be changed by hacking to them, inventing new technology, and changing their behavior. So by inventing new sensors and new actuators and new ways to display information, we can change nature of things. So that's why I think about it as hacking. I'll talk about some projects I did when I was in Walt Disney Engineering. You know, it's the happiest place on Earth, obviously. And I spent you know, eight, five years working there. The problem there in Walt Disney is that they already built this whole world, and it's all about magic, right? And, but walking around with a phone, it's not very magical. So what we would like to do is to figure out how we can take existing things, Disneyland, the Disney parks, and inject magic into them, making them bring them to life. This is a sensor I invented in about 2012, about seven years ago, which inject electrical fields, structured electrical field, into an object so they can recognize how you're touching them. You can see that it knows the gesture of the person touching it. It doesn't necessarily have to be a doorknob. A human body can be gesture interface. You can see how the person touches his own hands and it can recognize it. You can control music with that. If you want to stop the music playing, you can just close your ear and the music's still playing. Now, if you start using physical, uh, biological objects as an interface, 
You can use things like plants. There's a sound there, it's gonna come there. So plants has a very interesting structure, which allows us to know where you're touching it. So you can turn it into the musical instrument. I work for Disney, you know, you don't need anything useful there. So, and if you're very practical, practical person, you can make calendar appointments, you can manage your appointment through the plant. The missing point is how can we add visuals? How can we add, make sure that you can provide information without display? So this is one of the early work we did on the kind of augmenting physical objects with the graphical information with the same plants. We can communicate feelings, quote-unquote feelings of plants to the consumer. So orchid is not very happy when they're being touched, or the snake plant is respond to the touch and like to be played with. So the boss saw it, was happy. This kind of work, I continued working when I joined the Google. And I will talk about the next project we did called Project Soli. It's a very similar, very similar direction, how we can inject interactivity in everyday things. But here we'd like to create interfaces we don't require touch. And the Soli is a picker radar. It's a tiny radar which you can build into devices and track gestures in space. Now, a radar has a lot of interesting properties. It can track three-dimensional motion. It can be very inexpensive. It's low power. But most importantly, it can work through materials. So you can build it into a variety of different things, and it would work without being visible. You don't have to change the nature of things in order to make it interactive. Now, it turns out much harder problem when we started working on that. The radars were huge. Well, not that huge, but still was pretty large. So we had to go, and over the five years, we were shrunk the first prototype of the radar we built on this side into the very tiny chip you can see on the right side of the screen. However, working with the hardware is not sufficient. Even if you can make the hardware small, it's a signal you have also to work with. The way the radar works, it emits electrical field and captures the reflection from the hand, as you can see in this picture. Moving the hand changes the reflection, and by capturing this reflection and applying machine learning techniques, you can understand what the hand is doing. However, what we expected to see something like that when we started working on Soli back in Google. However, what you get is something like that. So the radar signal is very intuitive. It took us several years to build intuition. How can we understand the radar signal so we can use it for something which can be recognized and then used to control the devices. So this is our first breakthroughs. This is Doppler image captured, micro Doppler image captured by the radar. You can see that the same gesture across multiple users looks similar, and yet across the gestures there's quite a bit of difference. So this is, if you can see by your eyes, that you can apply machine learning artificial intelligence techniques, which we and Google have probably some of the best experts in this field, and then try it through machine learning, understand what are the features can be used for recognizing motion. And once we captured that, we started building a lot of different applications. This is, for example, application which is how sensitive the radar is. A small motion of the finger can control this knob on the screen. So you don't have to move your whole hand. You kind of, your hand becomes a little knob. And that can be applied to a variety of things. You know, for example, you can create a watch. This is the concept image. So you can control the watch, you can control your you know, radio, or, or not even use any physical object. Just use a freehand interaction to control things. So we actually did build a watch which allows to with the radar. This is a real working example how you can run on the watch. So instead of trying to touch screen, you can use your hand as an interface. We also work on things like how to, can we build a simple devices which allows to use gestures like a little puppeteering. So the faster you run, the faster the little guys run. And when you pick up a speed, it becomes a plane, and then you can run again. So all these examples how we explored using gestures in space to control computers. What about the big environments? Can you control and figure out who is walking around? So you can see these two images on the left and the right. On the left, you can see the overall signal, and on the right, you can see the human reflection. And you can see how in the middle image, 
the motion of the human is represented through motion of a multiple reflection point. So you can see that the human walking. It's enough information to capture and understand who is in the room or how many people in the room. Can you distinguish between human and the dog? And the answer is yes, you can. You can see this, again, look in the middle image, you can see the dog would look very differently. You see the tail flashing back and forward. I see there's a human and this is a dog. Little doggy. So a lot of possibilities, exciting new senses that allows us to create things which understand the context and understand the user. So the second challenge, even if you already create all these things, if you invent all these devices, how to create products? Because just creating technology and doing R&D is not sufficient. You have to actually take them and productize them. Now, in case of, in case of Soli, we just, we, we shift on the phone. It's a pixel phone. The first product which we shipped with Soli sensor inside the pixel, we put it on the top. You can see on the top there is a Soli radar chip and the very top of the phone is placed right next to the speaker and it allows you to track gestures inside of the phone. So one of the simplest approaches to ship consumer electronic devices with this technology. Now, I'm not going to go through the, what phone can do with the radar. You should experience yourself. There's a Best Buy 10 minutes from here, so you can go get it there. The challenge there is that you cannot apply this approach to all the things. Because again, our goal is to make things around you interactive and responsive. And the world of things is huge. How many phones you can make? 40 million, 200 million, Samsung sells 200 million phones. Just to compare, a world of clothing is 150 billion garments being sold every year. It's just massive. No Silicon Valley company, no consumer electronic company can create 150 billion garments. This is comparison how many phones being sold every year, 1.4. The consumer electronic industry is much smaller than the world of things. And we're only talking about the garments. If you add all the things we're using in order to make them interactive, in order to inject technology into them, we have to change the paradigm. We are thinking about people, makers of things, People who make those things like clothing or furniture or special devices have to become makers of smart things. And companies like ours should become platform providers to make you successful to creating these smart things. And that's what's the challenge we decided to address about five years ago when I joined Google. And I've formulated a very simple question. Can a tailor make a wearable? How technology should be shaped and formed so the tailor could be successful and stay tailor. Now, we don't want to turn tailor into engineer. We don't want to make, learn him in electrical engineering. We want him, him or her to stay tailor, but we need to provide them technology which is ingredient and fits the work style of the tailor. And that's how we start thinking about technology as a raw material in creating things. For example, if you think about touch panel, touch panel using your laptops or in, in regular devices, touch panel for engineer is going to look like this on the left. Touch panel for the tailor, which looks something on the right. It has to be made out of textile so the tailor can cut it, can sew it, it has to fit in the regular process of the production of the garments. And not only that, it has to be designed in a way that fits the entire supply chain. So we wanted to address this challenge. We actually started from the scratch. We went to the factory in Japan, which was making yarns. It's old kimono factory on the outskirts of Tokyo. Our collaborators were not engineers. We didn't go to Silicon Valley. We didn't went to Shenzhen. We went to this, an expert who had been doing yarns for 50 years. And we work with the artists, material artists who understand how to make things beautiful and how to make them approach this as a craft 
rather than in engineering. These are our first yarns that we made. You can see there's the metallic lines there which woven inside of the yarns. And the approach was there was very analog. It was not something we expected to. So it's really craftsmanship, combination of craftsmanship and technology encompassing hundreds of years of us making these kind of materials. We then went to the factory which makes textile. We woven this into the textiles and created a variety of samples of woven touch panels into the things. You see these red lines, little lines everywhere. These are touch sensitive panels which can be then used to connect electronics and run, create like a touch interfaces just like on iPhone. We then went to Taylor and gave it to them. It was in Savile Row in London. We gave them textiles. And the tailors are traditionalists. They don't use CADs. They're using hands tools. They don't use 3D models. They feed it on the human to understand how things work. There's a little touch panel which being sewed into the things. They're using regular tools such as needles and sewing machines. And at the end, he was able to create a touch-sensitive wearable device which can control your phone. So that was a very successful experiment. And going from there, we went on and worked with the Levi's and created the first commercial product, which was on sale. We, we launched it in 2018, which is the first commercial product of a jacket, which was built on a factories done by Levi's. We didn't go and build it ourselves. We don't want to become a manufacturer of garments. Levi's used their own factories and built it there. You can see on the left cuff, well, his left cuff, you see the right side, there's little lines on the cuff. It's a touch-sensitive panel with an LED uh, on behind it, which allows this rider, as you're riding a bike, to accept the phone calls, control the music, get next directions, and access all the sleeves of functionality while doing something else. This was our pilot. And this brings us with a final challenge. How can we go from a single product, which you launch, and then, you know, we, we launch here in the Valley, we launch products all the time, the single products, to the world of connected things. How can we scale? And that's the biggest challenge of them all. And I just want to remind us, what well, the challenge there is not to create a gadget. It's not to create another connected internet of things sort of toy. People play with it, forget. The goal here is to make existing things better by adding them, embedding them with the technology so they can be more helpful in the context of your use. And that's the goal. And it only has to be done on a very large scale. That means that every different thing would have a very different sensors depending on the context of use. It's not going to be one fits all. Everything has to be approached differently. So a shoe would not have a touch panel like we have in a jacket. The shoe would have maybe pressure sensors and accelerometers and would measure run speed and stride, maybe measure impact, knee impact as you're running to understand are you damaging your knee? I do have to take a break. And the people who are making those products, people who are making a jackets or, or suitcases or medical devices or beds or sheets, they have to also become service providers. They have to be thinking how their products can be enhanced with digital functionality so that they can become more useful, so they can take advantage of the machine learning and data, analytics, and so on and so forth. So you will become a service provider as well as a maker of those devices. Now, in order to avoid fragmentation, where everybody creates their own thing, repeat the same and same things over and over again, we need to create a common interface and common infrastructure and common platform which everybody can use, computing, Infrastructure and that's computing infrastructure is natural. It's a cloud. So the data would go to cloud and we would compute analyze it over there And for that you need a common computing standard a node which collects the data and pipe it to the cloud a little computer specifically designed For Internet of not Internet of Things, but the smart things connected to the cloud And that's what we launched about three months ago when I in the Google There's a called Jakarta tag and a small computer which designed specifically not to be useful by its own but being part of physical objects. 
And it's very low cost. It's certified in multiple countries. It has, you see, see little yellow lines. This is an interface to connect to a variety of sensors. So this computer can run solely, radar you saw before, or it can run touch panel, or it can run temperature sensor, or it can run any other sensor. And it also has inside built-in accelerometers, which can, we can measure motion, so on and so forth. It can connect through cloud, through mobile phone, but maybe in the future, through 5G and bring connectivity to everything else. So you don't have to rebuild it yourself, you just can use existing little computer to do that yourself. And we already launched two products for that. One of them is second version of the jacket. I'm wearing it right now, it's on me. This is a little computer, it's my hand. I activate my jacket by plugging this into the computer, into my cuff. And second one, we did a backpack with Yves Saint Laurent, with luxury brand. We're looking at different populations and different custom groups. And it's all working. It's already there, and we're having more partners coming on board and more products being launched around these things. And I'm going to be launched today. I'm, going to, I'm happy to show you this jacket and how it works. And we believe it's not just jackets or clothing. It can be all sort of things, from shoes to bags, to the wearable devices on the wrist, to understand how you're moving, to something you wear on your neck, to furniture, to special devices, to training, and so on and so forth. This, again, the goal there is to make all those things connected and all those things be able to take advantage of computing in the cloud. And we believe that this computer can become the ingredient, just like everything else you use to build your devices. And by doing this, what we want to create, we create seamless and connected experience. So through, the, through your day, you don't have to pull out your phone. The things understand what you do, and as you're going through the day, the intelligence and data being floating seamlessly and helping you throughout the day. And that's what we're inviting you to join, and we're inviting you to come on board and use this technology, and that's what we call an ambient computer. So thank you. That's it, my talk. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you for giving us a chance to look over the edge, to see what's coming. I just one quick question for you. It seemed as we were talking with Sean and I that these amazing potential applications, people who are impaired, who don't have the ability to function with all their limbs, seem like an obvious potential opportunity. You've been thinking along those lines of what either by activating an exoskeleton or other type of things. Of course, yes. So for last year, we were focused on the launching of the platform. To launch this platform, it's a lot of work, right? There's hardware and it's a lot of you know certification, shipping, but also on the software side, the cloud, GDPR, privacy, security, all those things to build this platform together took us about two years. Of course, we did it in the context of launching specific products because we don't want to work in a vacuum. But right now, we look at a variety of fields and obviously people with adaptive community, this is kind of the term we're using, is one of the biggest targets because I think that's where impact can be immediate and very valuable. Yeah, you've shown us an amazing insight into what can be and hopefully triggered a lot of thinking, a lot of ideas and you're staying for lunch, so yes, I appreciate I do. that. So before we go to lunch, I'd like to invite everybody to join Ivan and I on stage so we can take a team photograph that we will then uh, circulate to everybody. So please do come up, and as you come up, let's give Ivan uh, a round of applause for his amazing Thank talk. You. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of season three of the Digital Orthopedics Podcast and that you heard something that will trigger your curiosity and advance your digital journey. Many of the examples we bring you are outside of orthopedics, but the technologies and solutions we present are all eminently translatable to musculoskeletal care. Please consider giving us a review on your podcast platform so other people can find us. More importantly, tell a friend about our amazing community. We look forward to sharing the next episode with you. I am your host, Stefano Bini, founder and chair of both the Digital Orthopedics Conference San Francisco and this. 
the Digital Orthopedics Podcast.